Hello and welcome to this week's Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Deputy Personal Finance Editor Kate Bealey and joining me in the studio today is Personal Finance Writer Emma Ajman. On the line, we're joined by Mike Morrison, Head of Platform Technical at AJ Bell and Adam Laird, Passive Investment Manager at Hargreaves Lansdowne. So today we're going to cover the new pensions tapered annual allowance and talk about how you can avoid that charge. And we're also going to look at Neil Woodford's move to scrap research fees. Then finally we're going to take a look at a new China ETF index and whether or not it's worth using. But first to the pensions tapering. Um, Emma, it sounds very complicated. What What is this? Um, well, it is a bit complicated, Kate. Um, It's a new system that limits the amount higher earners can receive in tax relief on their pension contributions. And it does this on a sliding scale. So previously, everybody could receive full tax relief on pension contributions up to the maximum allowance of £40,000 a year. But now, anybody making a pension contribution who earns more than £150,000 a year will see a £1 reduction in their allowance for every £2 income they earn over 150,000. Um, okay. So, for example, if you earn 210,000 pounds or more, your allowance, i.e., the amount which you can receive full tax relief on, will fall to just 10,000 pounds. Okay, so that's quite a big reduction. And is there anything else that's different about this new regime? Um, yes, there is. I mean, the main difference is that the new system um, uses an adjusted income calculation. And this includes a much wider range of income sources to work out whether you earn more than £150,000, so whether you're in scope or not. Um, So it still counts your salary and any bonuses um, in the same way, but unlike the previous system, it also counts any earnings you receive from investments or properties that you may rent out, for instance. And most importantly, I think, it also includes any pension contributions your employer makes for you as part of your income. Okay, and so what happens if you go over this, for example, if you have got the 10,000 limit on Mm -hmm. your allowance, what happens if you breach that? Yeah, sure. Um, So if you go over your new lower allowance, um, you will not receive any tax relief on the amounts that you've gone over. So, for example, using our person who earns £210,000, under the new rules, they have a lower allowance, as you said, of only £10,000. Of all previously, they had £40,000. Um, if they make pension contributions of £40,000, for example, then they will only receive relief on the first £10,000 and will lose relief on the excess contribution. In this case, it's £30,000. OK. So, I mean, that sounds slightly complicated, doesn't it? Because you need to think more about more than just your salary, I guess, for working out income. I mean, who who do you think needs to pay close attention to this? What kind of level of income would you need to be on to be thinking about it. Yeah, sure. Um, the government has said anyone who earns a more than 110000 what they call them, threshold income, and that excludes their pension contributions, anyone earning more than 110000 needs to be aware that they could be affected by the taper. And this is because if they or their employer makes contributions of, say, £40,000, that would put them at £150,000 or over that, and that would mean they would be in line for a new lower allowance of tax relief. Okay, so Mike, what do you think about this new system? Are there issues with it in your eyes? Yeah, I think so. It's it's the bane of my life at the moment. (laughs) Everyone ringing up and asking about the calculation. And I I was hoping that with all the um, potential changes to um, pensions, tax relief in the budget, that this could have actually been um, discarded. Mm. Because it does seem, um, well, A, it's difficult, 
but it's difficult to explain. And the big problem is um, knowing exactly the figures it applies to. Right, yeah, because, I mean, I was going to say, what what do you do if you don't really know how much you'll earn this year? Well, the problem comes, I think, in trying to synchronise the calculation of your annual allowance with your salary and any bonuses that you get. So, say, for instance, you, you have a potential client and you work out with their salary that their annual allowance come down from forty to 30000 mm-hmm. And that client then gives you a cheque for let's say, £30,000, happily goes off thinking, pension, all done and dusted for this year. A little bit later in the year, perhaps that same individual earns an extra £1,000 bonus, Mm. obviously pays income tax on that bonus. Because they've earned more money, that would reduce their annual allowance again to, say, £29,500, but they've already paid you £30,000. So they'll be taxed on the the excess they've paid. So that £1,000 that they earned... Potentially, they've received tax at uh, 67.5% they pay tax on. So, what, I mean, what do you think people should do then in, in this context? I mean, do you think they should be looking back over previous years to I try and work really out I think it's really a case of almost going, firstly, try and work out a date uh, at which you know what your earnings for the year will be. So don't pay your pension contribution until, let's say, you receive a bonus in a, a particular month. Wait till you pass that particular month to... Uh, um, to work out what that bonus will be so you can work out the total remuneration. Mm-hmm. In some circumstances, you might be able to use carry forward. There were some rules introduced a few years back where if you don't use your full um, uh, annual allowance in a given year, you can carry it forward up to three years as long as you've been in the pension scheme. Okay, and I, I was going to come to carry forward, actually, because the do the carry forward rules apply to your new allowance? Would you be able to carry forward the 10,000, for example? Right, that, that, that's, that's, that's going to be the interesting bit, because when we get forward, to, so when we get forward to next year, and you'll be carrying forward any unused relief from the first year that the taper was enforced, the maximum you can carry forward will be your tapered annual allowance, not your full annual allowance. Right. So it starts getting very complex. Yes, it does sound very complex. And I know that in this piece, um, Emma referred to a few things that you might be able to do, and I think you mentioned tweaking your employer contributions, potentially. How would that work? In in, in some circumstances, particularly, let's say, if you were a small business owner and you were in control of uh, pension contributions for your small company, because of the way the definitions work, adjusted income, for instance, adds in employer contributions, but threshold income, for instance, deducts personal contributions, by paying a personal contribution instead of an employer contribution, you'll be taking out of the equation and reducing your income. So, for instance, you might be able to reduce your threshold income down below 110 by paying yourself a, a personal contribution as opposed to employer payment contributions. So reducing your employer contributions exactly. in lieu of a, a different form of bonus? or No, no really in lieu of a, a personal contribution. Right, but, I see. So swapping it around a bit. Uh, but this okay. is an area, I think, where when we start getting into the, the taxation issues of your small company, you probably need to talk to your accountant and also take any advice or, or get yourself informed, basically. Mm. I mean, what about using salary sacrifice? Well, the um, at the point in time when this was introduced last July, the... Um, uh, Treasury were very very quick on this and they said that any salary sacrifice or flexible earnings which they use as a bit of a catch-all term that was set up on or after the 9th of July 2015 
are added into the total for threshold income. So they, 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 give that to you, they've, they've made sure you couldn't redirect your salary, into your, your pension contribution into some other form, or your income into some other form, uh, to try and get around the, uh, the definitions. I see. Um, so, I mean, Emma, if you had to kind of summarise some takeaway points here for people, what, what would those be? Yeah, I think that people need to be aware of the new ways that the taper is calculated because that's an area that could trip people up and um, realising that adjusted income also includes your employer pension contributions, for example. Um, and you also need to think, you know, if you are over that threshold income of £110,000, then it's worth looking at how much um, you think that you're going to earn and how much your employer is going to put in if you know you have an employer that's making pension contributions on your behalf. Um, yeah, I think that that's an important thing. And also Mike's point of um, looking, perhaps look at this as an area that you might want to speak to your accountant or IFA for further advice. Um, and we've also got more information on how to beat the taper in this week's magazine. Great, okay. Um, thanks for that. And now we're going to move on to the news that Neil Woodford is scrapping research fees on both his flagship CF Equity Income Fund and Patient Capital Trust. So the company is going to shoulder these fees instead of charging them to investors as transaction costs. And he's also said he's going to publish all transaction costs online, which is a real step ahead of most of the industry where funds generally just publish ongoing charge figures. And those figures don't include things like um, trading the underlying assets on the fund or certain taxes that you incur, which actually as an investor you are hit with, but you might not um, notice, or well, you will notice, but you might not realise exactly what you're being charged for. Um, Adam, what do you think of this move? How different is it from the rest of the industry? Yeah, that's right. I think this is quite a strong move from Neil Woodford, who's obviously one of the best known and he's one of the most loved managers in the UK. Obviously, when you as an investor are looking at funds, performance is, is your top consideration. But charges are a real key determinant in investment performance. So this is a move in, um, in investors' interests. It's going to help, um, I think, put a bit of pressure on the rest of the industry, which hopefully will be positive. Mm. So do you think we might see others publishing transaction fees? Do you know of any funds that do publish transaction fees? This is the only fund that I could find who had made the disclosures in this way. But I think that there will be more pressure on the rest of the industry. Mm. Um, at the moment, it's very difficult to find out exactly what charges are applied in each case. But it's something that regulators have been looking at, and it's something that um, the trade body for the UK investment industry, the Investment Association, has been looking at. Yeah, well, I mean, They've, this this was the source of a big row, wasn't it, last year, which led to the ousting of Chief Executive Daniel Godfrey, didn't it? That's right. Um, there's been a lot of discussion and a lot of argument over the UK's fund managers about disclosure, how and in what form they disclose fees. Um, so I think that the new CEO who's come in, Chris Cummings, this is going to be pretty high on his agenda. Yeah, and we've covered that news um, online this week, so we'll take a look at that story. But just for people who want to know where to find transaction costs, is there anywhere that you can find them? Uh, there is information on the costs that are incurred by a fund in funds annual reports. 
um, and their funds obviously disclose um, ongoing charge figures, which which cover many of the fees, but not all of them that are incurred by the fund. I think what we find out from um, Woodford's news is that the whenever we add up the costs that uh, were incurred by that fund, almost 10% of the total cost incurred by the fund was um, not being represented in the ongoing charges figure. Mm. So I think it's really important that, that this information is available. Mm. And which is the biggest transaction cost, do you think? Is, is it spread or, or what is it? Uh, well, according to um, Woodford, it was um, transaction taxes. Um, obviously, he invests a lot in the UK, and the UK does have stamp duty when buying shares. But the spread of the underlying shares will be an, an important factor in some markets. Um, the costs of execution, the dealing costs, will be another important factor. But it, it really depends on case by case as to what the market is and how regularly the manager is trading. Yeah, because, I mean, the research fees section of the transaction costs, they're actually, they're actually very small for Woodford last year, I believe, or comparatively small. I mean, do you think this is the kind of thing that funds should be shouldering themselves? Or, or does Woodford benefit from the fact that you know, he does tend to to buy quite large, I guess, better researched companies and hold them for a very long time. So, I mean, do you think he's likely to have lower research fees than other funds might? Well, I hope that um, just because he's holding large funds for a long time, he's not doing any less research. <laughs> but um, he, he he may be paying less than, than other managers do because of his investment styles. But you, you asked the really important question, um, should this be paid separately or should this be part of um, a fund's annual management fee? And in my opinion, if, if research doesn't count as management, then, then what is and it? And what does, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, Woodford has earned quite a reputation for transparency, hasn't he? Particularly in light of publishing all of his fund holdings. I mean, that, that seems as well quite different from most of the industry. That's right. And Woodford has, to his credit, um, built up a reputation of transparency in this current venture. Um, he's declared his charges. He's um, been very public with his holdings, and that's much further than the rest of the industry. Mm. When it comes down to it, it is the performance that's the most important element in an investment fund. But uh, the charges in the holdings and having that access to that information is very important to a lot of investors. So I think it's it's good that he's taken the lead in, in bringing that forwards. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see if, if anyone follows suit. Um, so finally today, we are moving to China and we're going to take a look at this new China index and a new ETF. Um, it's interesting because uh, it's called the 8H50, I should say, um, and it claims to resolve a paradox of China equity investing, which is that some Chinese stocks trade at very different prices on the onshore and offshore markets. So this FTSE A2H50 index and the Deutsche Bank ETF, which tracks it, is able to buy stocks on the onshore market, A shares, and the offshore market, so the Hong Kong market, H shares, they're called, um, and is able to pick the cheapest one, which is often the H shares. Um, so it's claiming to kind of cut through the overvalued stock issue, which plagues the uh, China onshore market and investors in that. Um, Adam, why, it, even saying that there sounded very complicated, <laughs> why is the Chinese equity market so complicated? And what are all these different shares and exchanges? 
of course. There's a lot of this comes back to historical um, the way the market developed in China. China's long had investment restrictions on both um, their onshore investments and on the Chinese currency. Um, so traditionally, when fund managers invested, they would have done it through Hong Kong and H shares, which were the the class of shares that were were traded in, um, in Hong Kong itself. Now, recently, the government's been liberalising. It's been opening up the markets in the country to more foreign investment. And as it's done that, more foreign investors have been able to buy into the A shares, which are traded in the Chinese yuan, and they're traded on the um, Shanghai and Shenzhen markets. But importantly to this, the shares still trade at different prices. So on average, the A shares are currently about a quarter more expensive than the H shares. And that's because of the market restrictions, is it? That's right. Different investors are able to access different investments. And the A shares have been popular because the the market has really rallied um, at at various points. It's had some periods where it's it's done terrifically, but also when it's fallen back a lot. Yeah, because, I mean, as as it stands, you, you can track or you do have ETFs which offer you exposure to either A shares or H shares and, and also different kinds of shares. And as you said there, A shares have had this massive rally um, in 2014, I believe, but then went into an enormous decline last year, um, particularly around China's Black Monday in August. I mean, are A shares something investors should want to access? What What's good about them? The A, the A shares are still the most direct way to access China. The onshore market is um, the most broad and it has access to the most Chinese companies. And so this is a global superpower. Um, the country is experiencing still quite rapid economic growth. There are quite good reasons for investors um, to hold A shares, but you can only do that or you should only do that if you're conscious of and able to bear the higher risk that goes along with it. Yeah, so what about this index and this ETF then? Is there a need for it or not? <laughs> well, the the index gives the access to the, to the cheaper of the A or the eight shares. Um, and this is a way of investors perhaps avoiding some of the misvaluations. So, uh, and we hope that in the long run, as the markets liberalize um, and as rational investment takes over, the, the gap will narrow. In theory, this index should outperform. But uh, obviously in the short run, there's no guarantees. Yeah, and there are issues, aren't there, with this index for the average investor compared to other China equity indices? Yes, diversification is still an issue for me in this index. Overall, it's got close to three quarters in financial stocks. And that's an industry that's really at the mercy of the Chinese government regulators. Mm. So this isn't going to protect you in all ways. And there are still a lot of risks from investing in this way. Okay, so I mean, if you had to pick an index, then which which would you would be your preferred one? I do like the um, broad Chinese indices. There are a number of products at low cost that track the CSI 300, which gives a broad access to it, uh, to the onshore Chinese market. I would still like to see something which mixes the onshore and offshore markets. 
um, in an in index form or an ETF, but unfortunately that's not there just yet. Okay, we'll wait and see. Maybe they'll listen to this podcast and <laughs> decide to innovate. Um, I think that's all we've got time for today. So thanks very much to Mike and to Adam and to Emma. And you can read more about China ETF investing, about pensions tapering and about Woodford's move to scrap fees in this week's magazine. Thanks very much and have a good weekend. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.